Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today, please welcome legendary venture capitalist and author of Get Me Out of Here, This Effing Meeting, Why Meetings and Conferences Are a Huge Waste of Time and Money, Harry Edelson. Harry is also a past keynote speaker at the Angel Venture Fair, where he talked about in his book, Positivity, how to be happier, healthier, smarter, and more prosperous. Today, we're focusing on his latest book and get insights from his over half a decade of investing in entrepreneurs. Harry, welcome. Thank you. Always glad to be with you. You hold a very good meeting. Well, thank you, Harry. I much appreciate that. Uh, By the way, everyone, Harry doesn't look it at all, but Harry is 90 years old and Harry is still super sharp. And I hope that I will uh, look as good and sound as good as you'll hear Harry today. So, Harry, why and how did you become a venture capitalist? Well, it's a long story, but I'll cut it short. First, I was uh, in technology and I worked in computers in the early days, UNIVAC. I was in telecommunications with AT&T. So I went to Wall Street. And within one year of going to Wall Street, I became the most quoted person on Wall Street because I talked about the coming of tying together telecom and computers. And nobody ever did that. And nobody covered telecom in all of Wall Street. They just covered utilities, telecom companies. And nobody covered um, telecom as a group. So... When I went to Wall Street, I became very popular because I knew what I was doing. I worked in the industry and um, I quickly became the most quoted person in Wall Street and was the most quoted person for about 12 years. So it was fun. It was a new era in technology, tying communications and computers. And I worked for the first computer company. Univac, and the first telecom company, which was basically AT&T. So uh, I was a a pioneer in the industry and educated everybody to the coming of tying together those two industries. What was the best and worst parts of being a venture capitalist? Well, when you follow computers and telecom, you get to know the heads of all the companies and everyone's asking for advice. Should I buy this company? Should I buy that company? Well, I got to understand these companies very well. I had to watch, I had so much information. I had to make sure that I didn't say things I shouldn't say. So I knew what I was doing in investments and I knew all these companies, hundreds of companies in computers and telecom. And um, so the companies that I advised, I was an advisor to 100 companies. I was on 200 boards at one time, 200 boards. And I could do it all because of the skills that I have in my book, Positivity, reading 4,000 words a minute and, um, and all the skills that I had in uh, memorization and so forth. So inevitably, the companies I worked with wanted me to give them advice on what to invest in. So I became an investor. And um, I talked to 10 companies about investing in me in venture capital, and all 10 immediately said, we're in. 
So all of a sudden, I was a big time VC, you know, with AT&T and IBM and 3M and Ford Motor Company. And I never managed money before, but I was number one, according to my auditors, which were the number one auditor and number three auditor in the country. But I was number one in performance because I really knew what I was doing. And I knew these companies very intimately. Uh, so it's fun. But everything I do is fun. So if you're good at something, you you enjoy life. Everything is fun. I, I've never had a bad day in my life. Every day is great. And as you know, I've never been sick. I've never had a headache. I've never had the flu. I feel great every day of my life. So, Harry, what um, what was your batting average as an investor? Well, according to two of the four leading um, companies in the auditing business, I was number one in their practice, which was the eastern third of the United States. Number one. So, Do you know what, through, what through bad times on? and good times, well, I you did remember well. what, what was your return as an investor? Um, over 20 years, through bad markets and good markets, I was over 28% returns. And my investors told me, they don't care how I do. They said, you have to help us. We need your help. So my first goal was to help my 10 huge corporations with their business. And they didn't care how I did. So when I got back and told the people that work for me, I said, look, they don't care how we're doing, but we're going to do well because I know all the companies, I know how they're doing, and we'll do well. So we, um, we had a return over 20 years of over 28%. Uh, the companies that didn't make it, is there a particular reason that you learned that saved you from future losing ventures? Like, what did you learn from the companies that you invested in that didn't make it about either the company, the CEO, uh, you know, anything that as you looked forward and looked at future investments kept you from making uh, a bad investment? Well, let me uh, give you the, the, the lowdown on that. Um, I'm involved in a lot of companies, 200 companies, okay? And I found out what makes a good investment and what makes a bad investment. So the first thing I learned is I got to get rid of my bad investments. I got to stick with my good investments. And you know what the truth is? For most people, they're spending all their time on their bad investments. They are the squeaky wheels. They spend all their time on an investment that's just real crappy. And me, I'm saying I've got to get rid of these bad investments. I got to sell them back to the principles of this of these companies. They believe in the company, but I don't. I got to get rid of these companies. So I get out of my bad investments and stick with my winners. And just one winner in each fund, just one winner will pay back the whole fund. And if you have two winners or three winners, you're really doing great. So it's a matter of learning that you, you're not in business to, to fix the squeaky wheels. But I'm wondering themselves and you got to stick with your winners. All, all the CEOs you invest in, the ones that you got rid of, was there a commonality among the CEOs that when you look back and say, this is something that as an investor, especially angel investors who might be listening today, uh, that they can look for when they make an investment. Is there anything in the uh, leaders of these companies that were failing, what was there a commonality among them? Yes, but it can't be put down to, to one word. There's a commonality. They don't want to change. They know what they know, and things are going bad. Things are going out of style. Whatever it is, they don't want to change. So that's one key thing that the losing companies want to do. They don't want to learn. They don't want to change. They also are run by families. And very often, they put the family first, not the company first. 
So you know, I don't like to invest in companies that are the CFO is the family, the chairman is the family, the president's the family. I'm very aware that I might be walking into a trap when it's a family run business. Your book couldn't be taught more timely. Uh, the Wall Street Journal article this past week pointed out that meetings are crushing productivity and people are feeling super stressed. Uh, this is also your second book, um, Beyond uh, Positivity, ha How to Be Healthy, Happier, Smarter, More Prosperous. Why did you write this second book about, uh, the second book about meetings? Why did you write this? I go to a lot of meetings, hundreds, thousands of meetings, and they're not run properly. They take everybody's time and they just run the meeting the way they, the, the way that somebody else wants to run it. They are not running the meeting. They're sponsoring the meeting, but they're not running the meeting. The meeting is on its own. And the fellow who wrote my forward is the number two fellow in the entire military of the United States. He's run four um, submarines. Uh, he's a terrific guy, William Owens. Um, he knows that when I tell him, can you please stop? We have other people who want to talk. He listens. These very top people, they, they listen to orders. That's what they were trained to do. Other people who are managing a meeting, they're afraid to tell somebody, could you please sit down? We have other people who want to talk. They're afraid to do that. But these top speakers, they're used to doing that. You can't be afraid to tell somebody, could you wind it up, please? We have other speakers. So I'm not afraid of these top people. And I have them as my speakers all the time, very top people. And I'm not afraid of them. I know what they want. They want to be involved in an important meeting and they want someone to run that meeting properly. So when someone starts talking, even if it's a keynote speaker, for 20 minutes when he only has 10 minutes allotted to him, I tell him that. I say, could you please wind it up? They want to be told these things, but people are afraid. So you've got to control meetings and make them run properly. And that's what I do. My meetings start on time, they end on time. And um, if someone runs over, I allow it to happen for perhaps two minutes when to wind up. But if someone starts speaking for 30 or 40 minutes, you've got to cut them off. You have to, that's your job. So Harry, what makes this book different? There's a lot of books out there to talk about how to structure a good meeting, uh, which is very critical to uh, the success of companies because they've gotten so out of control over the years. So why is your book different as a venture capitalist like you would like to ask? Well, first, I like humor. So all my books have some humor in them. So it's a very serious subject, meetings, but I do it in a humorous way. And I have a a sketch that they do for each for each of 15 chapters. Um, I have somebody write a little sketch that's funny. So I want to improve meetings. It's a $400 billion annual business. And everyone has meetings. Girl Scouts have meetings. Boy Scouts have meetings. Everyone has meetings. Every company Every organization is, has lots of meetings, but there's nobody running it. It's out of control. So I'm, I've been to a lot of meetings that are totally out of control, that somebody is running something, taking 45 minutes for his first action when it should have been 10 minutes or 15 minutes, and nobody stands up and says, hey, we've got other speakers. So I decided that I have to improve 
the subject of meetings, make them run more efficiently. And so I wrote the book and it's funny. The first three people who read the book said it's hilarious. And these are people from major uh, publishing firms. And um, if everybody followed the advice of the books, we would save a billion dollars, $2 billion, because meetings are so badly run. So I recognize that. And I bring some, some of my friends to meetings when I say, watch this. You know, um, the microphones are not going to work. But sure enough, they get up to speak and the microphone's off and everyone's yelling, turn on the microphone, turn on the microphone. I could predict what's going, going to go wrong at every meeting. So Harry, let me Harry, let me ask you, you write there are two types of meetings. What are they? And is one better than another? Well, one meeting is we'll call it the Girl Scouts, call it an in-house meeting at Apple or whatever. And another meeting is ones that you pay, like at a conference, where you pay money to listen to good commentary. So um, when you pay money, you expect to have a very good, efficient meeting. And you shouldn't stand for showing up at a meeting at 9. And it doesn't start until 9.30. 30 minutes of your time is very valuable. This happens all the time. And now every meeting is off by at least 30 minutes because it, it, it creeps. And you know you may be off by an hour in, in the third meeting of the day, so meetings can be improved dramatically. But because meetings are all over the lot, nobody is actually running the meeting in many cases. And in the meetings that I attend, I run the meeting. I start the meeting on time. I end the meeting on time. I have every speaker alert to the fact that they're running over their time. Because somebody who comes to a meeting and wants to attend the third meeting, but when he gets there, they're still on the second meeting or the first meeting. I don't want that to happen. Um, Harry, how has the pandemic impacted, which you mentioned uh, the 15% of business meetings in terms of substance and usefulness? How's the uh, pandemic? changed meetings, if at all? Well, I've given that a lot of thought. Uh, meetings have been changed by the pandemic. Zoom has become more popular. People don't want to work in the cities anymore. Transportation is bad. And a lot of them have learned, a lot of people have learned they can get more done working from home than showing up at a faraway meeting. So, so meetings are out of control. Nobody is really running them. I say nobody, of course, that's a little exaggeration, but most meetings are not well run. So, um, and when I go to meetings, I cringe at how they're run. They're run very poorly. And somebody should take charge of meetings. Like in the military, they'll do that. And Admiral Owens is aware of that. He's happy I'm cutting him off. He's happy. They want to take orders in the military. And they'll, they'll do what's right. So they don't let meetings run out of order. And I don't let meetings run out of order. I'm there to control meetings, save everybody's time and have the meetings um, that are powerful and compact. So I want to ask you this. When networking with investors, how should an entrepreneur initiate conversation? And are there any don'ts when networking with investors? So they meet you, meet investors at meetings that you go to, entrepreneurs. What's the best way to network with them and break into a conversation? Well. It's a diverse answer. Okay, so um,
there, you go to a meeting and people line up to talk to you, for example, after your presentation. Okay, some of those guys are really smart and they want to save their good questions for a private meeting that only takes five minutes or so, or 10 minutes maybe. But that's where they're asking the good questions and getting the good answers. So you can't let someone at a meeting, you give a speech and 10 people are lined up to get your card. And one person wants to take all 10 or 15 minutes of your time. You've got to control things. Meetings are out of control. And you, as a speaker at a meeting, you have to control that as well. You can't let somebody take 20 well, minutes of your time at a meeting where people are lined up to talk to you. I guess the on the opposite end of, is what I'm uh, looking for here is as an entrepreneur, and I want to break in to ask investors, especially venture capitalists like you, I want to uh, talk to you about my venture. What advice do you give me as an entrepreneur trying to network you at an event? Well, they're going to be disappointed. I'll talk to someone. I'll be polite. But I'm not going to spend a half hour talking to someone on a company that I have no interest in. I mean, he's coming up with uh, a hydrogen automobile. He needs, uh, you know, $3 billion or so. And he's talking to me. And I'm not going to give him more than a million dollars or $5 million or whatever. So um, I act polite to everybody who comes to me and wants help and advice. And I do it quickly. And I do it in a very polite way. But there are a lot of people who would come to me who I have no interest in talking to because they're, because they're dreaming about what they're doing. They don't understand how much money they're going to need. They don't understand that their competition is Ford Motor Company and, uh, and you know big companies. They just have no understanding, but yet they want to start a company. So a lot of those people I act polite to, but I just say, um, I'm, I have no interest in your industry or your company and I wish you luck, um, but I'm not interested in what you're doing. Harry, we have a question from the audience. What are some of the key elements that will capture an investor's attention and will get you a private meeting at a later date? Well, when I get a lot of uh, emails with who want to talk to me about their company, um, probably at least 10 a day. And I have one out of 300 that I contacted. And they're talking with JP Morgan and they claim they're going to raise their money. Um, which is about $60 million. And I like the scope of what they were doing. And they claimed they're going to go public. I told them you could use my name. And they talked to um, the head of JP Morgan, Jamie, you know. And uh, I said, you could use my name because I believe in their project and their background in building major companies. So, that's the kind of percentage we're talking about. So if I get 300 business plans in a quarter, let's say, there might be only one that I'm really interested in. But how do they capture your interest? I mean, that's what the uh, listener is asking is, what's the elements that capture an investor's attention? What's the best way to get a private meeting with someone like you? And, and it doesn't have to be you. It could be other investors. Yeah, but that's, that's a good question. Uh, a good yeah. question, okay? And you have to realize if you have a little startup company, there's only certain investors who would be interested. You know, some of the big VCs are not going to be interested in an early stage startup. They want to get something a little more advanced than that. 
So you have to understand what the VC wants. The VC may want early stage companies, but with people who are well-versed in hydrogen propulsion, for example. Um, and you hate to say you're gonna brush off a lot of the people, but you have to understand if you're raising money that you've got to talk to people who would invest in a, co a company in your industry and uh, in your size. I used to send notes to people and say, sorry, I'm not interested, but I stopped doing it. There were too many. So, so go ahead. When entrepreneurs are pitching, what are you looking for in their PowerPoint and the content of their pitch? And what are common mistakes to avoid, which you talk about in your book? So you, you talk about the pitch in yeah. your book when you're listening to uh, entrepreneurs give their PowerPoint presentation. So most, most of the pitches are really bad. They don't have what I need. For example, what's their history? How much money have they raised? What have they done in growth in revenues and earnings? Simple things that should be in every business plan. So I'm looking for these simple things. They don't have them in most cases. And so I might, if I'm really interested because they have special expertise um, and I like the business they're in. So sometimes I'll say, um, I have some interest in what you're doing do you have a complete business plan? Because what you send to people should be basically a teaser. You should send them something that attracts their interest, but not an 80 page business plan when you're in a second stage of development. So it has to be appropriate in size and in capabilities. So now if, if you have a fellow approach you who's had a great background and he's doing a startup and he has people with him who are doing a startup, fine. But people who are further advanced, they've been around for two, two years or three years or four years, they should be able to send you something that excites you. So I look at it and say, I, I really am looking for a teaser. Show me something that's interesting and then I'll ask for further information. How, how many pages or how many slides do you think an investor presentation should have? Well, you know, I read very fast. So if I'm interested in something, I'll go through a 60 page presentation and I'll read it immediately. I read every business plan immediately. So, um, I would like something that attracts my attention, that you don't have to put in all the details. Just say, we've grown our revenues to 75 million in the last six months, and we expect to do 450 million within the next two years. Something like that. But something that I believe that they know what they're talking about. So it has what to about, be something what about, realizable. What about the early stage companies? Because most of the people listening are not uh, for companies further along. So when you advise early stage companies who uh, have a product that's ready to go to the market or it's been in market just for a little while and it has less than a million in revenue, what are some of the key things you expect to, for them to have in an, an investor presentation when they're standing in front of you in a room with other uh, investors or uh, that they are uh, that they are making a um, a short uh, investor presentation like at the angel venture fair 10 minutes what are some of the key things that you think are important early stage companies they can't go out and say I want 30 million or 50 million. They've got to start by showing something that you're able to sell something. So if you're an early stage company and you have no revenues, don't ask for 30 million or 20 million or 10 million. 
Okay, get started. Show proof of concept. So, you know, there's an expression, horses for courses. Um, you know, some horse can run well on this track, but not on another track. So you have to look at um, an early stage company has to go to VCs who are early stage investors. They're not going to go to the big VCs who want to find a place to invest 100 million or 200 million. So first get started and allow people to own a piece of your company. I mean, if you want to raise money, raise money at a very reasonable price and get them in. So don't try to get money for nothing. You're gonna get money from people who are recognized that you have something that's good. And don't ask for too much money if you're an early stage company. There are um, a lot of times you go to big conferences and you want to meet some of the top people there, especially the investors for entrepreneurs. What's your advice on networking? Well, networking is great. I love networking. And I, and I like to meet certain interesting people. So I may go to a conference and target somebody that I... I might want to go up to him afterwards and exchange business cards. Um, so it depends on your own capability, your own background. I can get through to very, very top people because of my background and because I'm well-known. Don't expect to get through and talk to very top people if you don't have a background uh, that's suitable. If you're somebody who's not well-dressed, someone who hasn't had a background working for a big company. So you have to sort of be suitable. You can't talk to a very top person if you're not a top person. Now, if you're number one in creating um, a new technology and you can convince somebody of it, you might say, look, I'm the number one person in the country in driverless cars. Okay, so you got something. And he may want to know you because of that. You got to have something that attracts their attention. You're not going to attract the attention of top people if you have no background. Is there any correlation between good thought out presentations and successful entrepreneurs? Say that again. Is there a correlation between good thought out presentations and successful entrepreneurs? So when you see a good thought out presentation and, and, and the person makes a solid presentation, does that usually an indicator that you're going to see a success, that this is going to be a successful entrepreneur? Or could it be all smoke and mirrors that they're just good at making a presentation? Well, there's a lot of things that have to be put together. You can be a great presenter and not be able to build a good product. Um, there are some people who are very good, but they refuse to hire assistants who can help them, who are bringing something that they don't have. In other words, you may be a great scientist or someone who can make things, but you don't know how to market your product. So you need a team. There's lots of things that go into the equation. So if you talk to somebody who after a meeting and you know that they are lacking in technology know-how or in marketing or whatever it is, they're going to understand that right away. You've got to get their attention by bringing something to the table that attracts them. And that's the key in getting the attention of people. That's why I say you need a teaser. And so if you come up to someone and say, um, I helped sell the first uh, major yachts in, in the world. Okay, 
that's good. And now you got a yacht building company and you're a great salesman. You put two and two together. So you have to think about what your background is and what their background is. And there's such a thing as grabbing someone's attention. That's what I'm really looking for initially. Something that grabs my attention with great expertise, great marketing, great capabilities, whatever it is. And I may I go like to a meeting and meet 50 people or 200 people, but how many of those people can I help? Maybe none. Maybe there's one or two that I say, well, they've really got something. If he comes up to me, I'll talk with them because he's got something that I need and I might need that in another company and they can hire this fellow. So, um, you know, it's, it's a complex subject. It's not something I could just lay out in, in a minute. It's a complex subject, meeting the right people and convincing them that they should know you. Um, going back to meetings, what has changed aside from technology related to meetings since you joined the professional workforce over 70 years ago? Are meetings less or more substantive than when you entered the professional workspace? Well, we've come a long way in meetings with Zoom and things like that. So we're able to hold meetings that can convey more information than previously. There are more than uh, there. There are more than just regular office meetings, as you write in the book. There are all sizes of conferences. Sometimes you feel a conference was great because there were substantive speakers and great networking. Other times, just the opposite. What makes a great conference, and how can the organizer make it feel substantive? Well, it starts to me. A great conference is run on time. Have you ever been to a dentist or a doctor and your meeting is at one o'clock and they, they say, you gotta be here on time. And if you're not, you'll be put at the back of the line. So the first thing at a big meeting is it's gotta be run properly. It's gotta be run on time, not only to show up on time, but to be there during the day of meetings. If a meeting is scheduled at uh, 3.20, you want it to be starting around 3.20, not 4.30. So yeah, when I go to a meeting that's not well run, I know it and I'm not happy. The meetings have got to be well run. If you go I to a meeting that doesn't have microphones, and nobody can hear who's speaking, it's not a good meeting. There are so many things that go wrong with meetings. They're all spelled out in my book, 15 reasons why meetings don't work. And it's all done with pictures that can explain what, what's wrong. So, so many things go wrong with meetings right away. As Soon as you walk in, you're disappointed. It starts 15 minutes late and they say, well, we got to wait till people come in from eating lunch or something like that. Um, no, it's like going to a doctor's office or if you go on a radio station, I've been on radio and TV a lot. Everything is to the minute. Okay, when they say you got to be here at three o'clock, that's it, you got to be there at three. They've got their program all set at three, at 310, at 410 and so forth. So I, I look at meetings the way radio stations look at it, the way doctors look at it. The meetings have got to be run on time and properly. And if someone is out of line, you got to tell them, hey, you're running past your time. So we got to, you know, we have to bring in the next speaker. Um, we have if a you're, question. Go ahead. We have a question from the audience. 
What venue would offer the best networking opportunities? It seems presentations, most networking events are way too crowded and there's substantial dilution of the depth of interactions. Any recommendations? You got to pick your correct meeting. Okay, there are some meetings some people shouldn't be going to. Um, particularly, let's say you're in a medical meeting. If you're not into medical deals, you know, you're out of place. Um, so not every meeting is for every person. If you have 100,000 to invest and in your meeting, all the speakers are running huge portfolios, you're in the wrong meeting. You have to pick the right meeting to go to. So otherwise you're out of place and maybe you go in there just for looks, just to see what it's about, that's fine. But the, the, the people you're trying to reach, they're too grown up for what you're at if you're early stage. They may be looking for someone who, who wants uh, invest, wants to invest four million or six million and the speakers, they want 40 million or 60 million or 80 million. So you've got to go into the correct meeting. Not all Harry, meetings I, are for all people. Harry, I think he's also asking, should you go to big conferences where there's lots of people or should you focus as an entrepreneur looking to network with investors and try to be at smaller meetings with less people that you might be able to catch the investor. Yes, I think one of the reasons for going to meetings is to make contacts. So you go in and you might hear somebody speak <clears throat> on the stage and he attracts your attention. So you want to meet him. But he, you may be in, in a different league. You're not in the big leagues and he doesn't want to talk to you. So it, it's a game. You got to have the right contact. Not all meetings are for all people. So when you go to a meeting, you have to select the right parties to approach. Is it, is it make a difference between whether it's a, a large meeting with a thousand people or a smaller meeting with a hundred people? What do you think is better for the entrepreneur to attend? Well, <laughs> you know, you'll get better food at the bigger meetings, okay? So if you're there to, to eat, you go to a big meeting and you just blend in. If you want to, when I go to a meeting, I want to meet just one person at every meeting, one person who can really harmonize with me. That's an example. So whenever I go to a meeting, I would rather make one great contact then meet and exchange cards with 50 people. So I have my own way of trying to meet with somebody who can really help me. Someone who, let's say I want to give a speech to a group that I run. Okay, so I, if I see such a person, that's the one that I want to meet at, at that particular meeting. So, I always go with a purpose. I don't go to a meeting to just shake hands with a hundred people. I go to a meeting to make one contact, maybe two, maybe three. But if I get one good contact who I can work with and make an investment in, that's, that's what I'm looking for. So I have a purpose. Every meeting I go to, I have a purpose. Um, Harry, you had stats from rating CEOs in your book you invested in. You said 10% are crooks, 15% are incompetent, and 25% uh, stay past their time, 25% are good, and 25% are excellent. How do you detect a crooked one before you invest in them? How would you even know they're crooked, and what are the signs? Okay, I, I have had lots of crooks that I invested in. People that uh, 
Harvard Business School professors, uh, you know, high level people. They were crooks. They were crooks. Uh, you know, they just made uh, to be crooks. That's in their blood. They're crooks. So I've been quoted in the Wall Street Journal about crooks. I'm not embarrassed to talk about the fact that I invested in some crooks. Not a lot of money, but I put money in to sort of check it out. So I, I tell stories about these crooks in my book, in my first book and my second book. So. Um, but how did you, is there any way to tell in advance based on your experience now, if you think a CEO is dishonest? Yes. And it's mentioned in my book. If someone promises you will get a guarantee of at least 20% per year. He's a crook. There's no guarantees in investments. So um, someone who guarantees good performance is a crook. Nobody can guarantee anything. Uh, you're at risk. Um, I, I tell the story about this German, these two guys came up to me and they were at the beginning of uh, recycling. And they had this huge plant in Germany. We were ahead of the game. You know, we hadn't caught on yet to having these huge recycling plants. So I go out there to Germany with this guy. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm looking, uh, he's got cans going and bottles going. He's got this huge facility. So I, I asked him, how did you get this huge facility? Where'd you get the money from? He said, oh, I got these clients who gave me a lot of money. So he stepped away from me to get a phone call. So he goes to get a phone call. And I say to this other fellow standing there, I said, who owns this plant? He says, the city owns this plant. But this guy told me that he owns the plant. <laughs> the guy laughs. So... That's doing your due diligence, okay? Just finding out that he doesn't own this huge plant. Um, so I've had uh, had this fellow at Harvard, a doctor at Harvard University, and he was a crook. So every time I asked him about how he's doing, oh, everything's going great, and that's it. He would just say everything's going great. And then I found out by traveling to Harvard and looking up this doctor that he's done nothing, that he's a crook. So he's just trying to screw me. And I went there and did some due diligence and found out he was a liar and a crook. So even if you went to Harvard and you were a doctor there, you could be a crook. So uh, <laughs> that's why. When you're, you're dealing with one person or two people, you're more likely to find a crook. If you're Harry. dealing with um, the people, uh, with people that are organized, they have a committee, they have lawyers, they have this, you're less likely to be with a crooked organization. So uh, Harry, before I, I, I invest wonder. in a company, I always delve into it and ask a uh, Oh, who's your secretary? Who's this? Who's that? Sure, trying to find someone that I can trust and talk to privately. I, I'm wondering this in the book, you mentioned about CEOs that stay past their expiration. What are the signs a CEO has gone past their expiration date? That they're not working hard anymore, you mean? Yeah, I mean, you tell us what are the signs that it's time to remove the CEO, aside from the fact that maybe the company's doing poorly. But what if the company's doing okay, or maybe a little bit better than okay, but you think that it's now time to remove them, that they've been in that position too long? How do you, what are the signs that you see that it's now time to make a change? You know, I have a lot of, I've been in with 200 companies. Okay, um, and I know about 
the legal aspects of it. You got to have, you got to do things legally and properly. So, some people, they stop communicating with you. That's a bad sign. Somebody communicates with you every week or every, uh, every two weeks, and all of a sudden the communications slows down or stops. That's a very bad sign. So, um, and the idea is when you get to invest in a company, you can't just stick with one person or two people or three. You've got to know a lot of people in the company. You got to go there, have lunch with them, meet six or eight or 10 people. So you have an avenue to learn what's going on at the company. And especially if you invest in a company that's run by a family. When you go there, oh, this is my nephew, this is my brother, this is, that's a really big warning sign. Because, you know, blood is thicker than water. I mean, you've got to watch out. So. What's the pros and cons of dealing with a family? I mean, or you've talked a lot about the negative part, yeah. but are there, are there any upsides of dealing with investing in a family business? Well, As obviously there are good families and there are honest families, but there are families that cover things up. So you just have to be careful when you invest in two top people who are related in a company because blood is thicker than water and they will stick up for each other more than they'll stick up for you. So I'm leery of investing with family. They're not all bad. There have been great family businesses. So I'm not saying they're all bad, but to me, it's a warning sign when there are families at the top level of a company. So there might be three members of a family. And I'm very concerned and normally would turn down that investment. How do you know if a CEO that you've invested in is incompetent? Like you might've thought, oh my gosh, this is a great company, great <laughs> CEO, but all of a sudden you find out within a year, uh, and I had that experience once of working with somebody, he had the perfect white hair, he had the Ivy yeah. League degrees, uh, but he was an idiot. So um, how, how do you see, how do you know that in the beginning? Or can, you know, detect well, it even? Coming. You're coming. You have a feeling for someone's honesty, someone's capabilities, and you got to stay in touch with them. You go there and the guy is lying about his performance, for example. He said something that he's turning out a lot of automobiles and there's no production line. I mean. So you go and you if you put a lot of money in, you got to visit the company and you got to talk to a lot of people and you got to insist on talking to the head of production, the head of marketing. So I mean, you've got to do that. Usually you do it before you invest. Occasionally when you invest a small amount of money, you might do it afterwards, but you should do it before. So... I'm visiting a company and I'm looking for problems and I'm not embarrassed to find out problems afterwards where they cover it up beforehand. So and I laugh about it in my, in the books I've written because sometimes they snooker you in. And by the way, I love to sell my interest in a company to a family because they're full of themselves, they think they're great, and they're not so great. So I always will find someone who's stupid at a company that's doing really badly, but they think they're doing well. They're fooling themselves. So I like to find one of the people who buy out my stake is one of these families that's full of themselves. So um, that's the first thing I do when after six months or a year, I find out this company is not doing what they claimed they'd be doing, they're doing very poorly. So I always try to sell my stake back to the management of the company because they are the stupidest ones about, about their company. 
They think they're doing great when they're not. Harry, so, we have a question for the audience. Loses, and I ride with my winners. And it's the opposite of what most VCs do. They ride their losers. They are the squeaky wheels. They're bitching about everything. Every It's everybody's fault but their own. So I find certain companies, and they have like eight divisions. And I say, eight divisions? How do you keep track of everything? And I go down there and find out that six of those divisions are doing poorly. I say, what do you, why do you have these divisions? Get out of them. Just start selling them off. If they don't want to do it, I get out. So, um, yeah, go ahead. So I have a question from the audience. Um, he was wondering if you had successful investment where he's made a multiple, uh, uh, made the target multiple in a family-owned business. So did you ever have invested in a family-owned business where you made the targeted multiple that you were looking for? I don't think I ever have. I've had 14 unicorns, companies that when I went in, the whole company was worth 10 million to 20 million, let's say. And I would go in and they would do great. And they would want more money and I'd give them more money because I checked out the company. So um, have I ever made a lot of money in a family owned business? I don't think so. I can't remember. And I, you know, I know people who have families that are very famous. Um, I know the presidents who are famous like the Bush family. Um, but I don't think I've made a ton of money or any of my 14 unicorns were run as a family. Maybe it's coincidence, but I, I have never had a family run business that became very big. Uh, Harry, we have a, another question from the audience. What is your investment criteria? Do you have a specific sector or sectors that you lean towards? Well, the answer is yes. Every VC has rules that they go by. And first, a lot of VCs only invest in, let's say, medical or mechanical or whatever. So I like to have an open capability to invest in anything. So it's one of the reasons I've had so many good investments. I'll invest in anything, anywhere. If I believe the management is good. And, um, and that once I put money in, that I can see that they're moving in the right direction. So, um, but I'm, I'm leery of investing in family controlled businesses. So I might invest in them, but I'm very leery because I know blood is thicker than water and they'll so do what's right for their relative rather than for the investors. So Harry, what's your take on artificial intelligence? Are you investing in AI or companies that are using a lot of AI? What, what's your take on this AI mania right now? Well, I've been involved in AI, you know, for 10 years or 15 years. So I did a lot of these early stage things way back. And uh, every once in a while, they, they rise to the top of the heap, depending on what's going on, like uh, the automobile business driverless automobiles, for example. Okay, I've been involved in that for 10 or 15 years. Um, but you know, you can't uh, find every, you can't find the right company every time. So um, I'm leery of new businesses and they've been around very often for 20 or 30 years. I mean, you take a fax machine. Fax machines were around for like 50 years before they became popular, maybe 20 or 30 years ago. There's a lot of businesses that rise to the top after many, many years. So I'm looking at some of these current businesses like AI, and I've been involved in AI, I'd say for 20 years, 
I've known about it, and, but not invested in it. So um, sometimes you'll put some money in for a try, and then you ask for an out when it's not working out. And you say, look, why don't you buy me out? And I've done that a number of times. So uh, I get bought out because the management, they will love what they're doing and think they're doing great. But I've learned by doing due diligence and meeting a lot of other companies that things are not so great in the industry. So um, I like to get out of what I consider my losers. I ride with my winners. I've got a winner. I'm going to make 50 times my money, 200 times my money. I'm going to ride with that company. And if I got, I got a loser. It's going to take me to the cleaners. I got to get out of that company. And I may recognize their losers because of my interaction with them. So I have a rule. Get out of your losers and ride with your winners. And that I follow that rule. Harry, I want to say thank you so much. As incredibly, the hour has gone quickly. I thank you for taking the time to speak with all of us. Wish you luck in your newest book. And um, look forward to hopefully maybe you'll do another book when you're 100. So, you uh, and I want to thank everybody for listening today. Okay. Well, you always have a good group of people. And I always enjoy talking to your group. Goodbye, Thanks. fellas. Have a great weekend, everyone. See you all next Friday. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.